Hi there, and welcome to the Grief and Rebirth podcast. I'm your host, author and trauma survivor, Irene Weinberg, here to encourage you wherever you are in your healing journey. In each episode, I chat with incredible grief and trauma specialists, healers, mediums, and celebs, as well as remarkable people who have inspiring healing stories to share. If you're looking for a podcast that's both uplifting and inspiring, you've found it. Let us help you find your joy in life. Hi, everyone. I hope this finds each of you so very well. I'm speaking to you today from my studio in West Orange, New Jersey. Absolutely delighted to welcome poet Andrea Carter Brown, whose book titled September 12 contains her collection of award-winning poems about 9-11 and its aftermath. Andrea will be speaking to us from Los Angeles, California, where she lives with her husband, Thomas Drescher. Andrea is a former resident of downtown Manhattan who was living a single block away from the World Trade Center on 9-11. Her eyewitness account of the attack and its aftermath is described in her impressive award-winning book that contains masterly poems filled with astonishing beauty and wisdom. September 12th, which has won many prestigious literary awards, was published in September 2021 to commemorate the 20th anniversary, anniversary of 9-11 and it serves as a haunting memorial to 9-11. I'm looking forward to talking with Andrea about what inspired her to become a poet, her experiences the morning of 9-11, how the intense trauma she endured eventually led Andrea to acceptance and healing and more for what will surely be a stirring and unforgettable interview. Hi, Andrea. A warm, heartfelt welcome to Grief and Rebirth podcast. Hi, Irene. So happy to be with you. Oh, I, just, I, I just need to say something quickly, which is that the minute I heard your voice, I heard New Jersey and I felt right at home. I'm so happy to do that for you. <laughs> Thank you. You know, um, honestly, there's so many references. When you talk about Glen Rock, I've been in Glen Rock. You talk, you made all the references to this part of the country. Um, it's kind of comforting uh, for this Jersey girl to be talking to you with, with your uh, reference points of New York and New Jersey, even though we lost you to L.A., <laughs> well, I will always be a Jersey girl. Um, you know, where you're living is noted on the map, which appears at the front of my book, because I'll mention it, why it's there. So it's nice to talk with someone who knows Glen Rock, because the poems about Glen Rock, where I was born and grew up, are really at the heart of the book for me. And um, it's a small place. <laughs> and part of the reason the poems about the 11 victims from Glen Rock are the heart of the book is because in that small a commuter community, everyone would have known everyone else. Heartbreaking. 
heartbreaking. Well, I happen to live, even before I give you, ask you my first question, I want to tell you this. I live across from the Highland Pavilion in West Orange, New Jersey, where people were able to see the World Trade Center um, that day. And there is a memorial right across the street from me of so many, I can't even know the numbers of people who came to that site from all over Jersey and put pictures of loved ones and what was oh. going on and came to that site to, to see what had happened. And today it's a, it's a regular memorial where people come quite often to see the view of the New York skyline, where the towers were. They have uh, information about it and all of that. So we, we both are very deeply associated with. And I think New Jersey was, was, well, first of all, my niece took me to that memorial and oh. I've stood there and I've seen the skyline. Um, the first time I stood there and saw the skyline, there was nothing to replace the Twin Towers. Um, now there's a lot. Um, and the whole skyline has changed in some ways, even Midtown. Um, and But I think that a lot of New Jersey communities suffered terribly terribly because we're a community and so many people work in work in the city from New Jersey. Yes, I've explained to many people the way the way the commuter lines where the commuter lines go affects who works in parts of New York. So when I worked on near Grand Central, most of the people I worked with came from Westchester. When I worked on the west side, most of the people came from Long Island. When I lived downtown, and I worked downtown also for a while, well, it was all the, the, the it, would have been, it could have been the parents of my childhood friends because those Jersey train lines went to Hoboken. Yep. And back then there was a ferry. Then for a long time, there was no ferry. Now there's ferries again. But, um, and there's the tubes, which did not exist when I first, when I was a child. And um, so there's a very close connection between New Jersey and lower Manhattan. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, let me ask you your first question because we know you're a wonderful poet, but would you like to give us an overview of your life before you became a poet so we can know Andrea? Sure, I'll do the best I can. I came to poetry late. Um, I always loved it. It was a love that my mother nurtured by giving me and reading poetry to me as a child. But um, my first love was, um, okay, I'm going to be a little more explicit. So I was born in Patterson, New Jersey. Right around, by the way, I lived in Wayne. We're yeah, like okay. <laughs> and I was, and I'll give myself away obliquely by saying that I was born the same year that William Carlos Williams, the famous American poet, published his collection of poems about being a doctor in Patterson. Uh, and then I grew up my entire childhood very close by in Glenrock, Ridgewood, and Wartendike, which I don't even know if Wartendike exists anymore. And um, my father was a junior high school teacher and guidance counselor, and my mother worked in the town library. So unlike 
the fathers, mostly of all of my friends, they did not commute to Manhattan. We were a local family. My father got a job in Glen Rock after, after returning from World War II. Um, my parents lived there until they retired and moved to Cape Cod. So um, I studied French in college. I love French literature. I love pretty much everything about the French, except that they're crabby and are, <laughs> are trending to the right politically. Um, and I did all an ABD in French and woke up one morning, and I would call this the sort of first epiphany I had in my life, that I had prepared myself to become a teacher, and I never wanted to become a teacher. As the child of a teacher, I saw inside out what education was like. More power to the great teachers out there, even the okay teachers out there. Um, but that was not where I saw myself. And um, I always had a facility with numbers and I had been putting myself through college and graduate school working as basically a file clerk and a bookkeeper for law firms. Wow, now where did you go to college, Andrea? Oh, uh, I went to three different colleges. I started at Harper College, which is SUNY Binghamton. I went to Drew University and I finished up at NYU. Okay. And then I did my master's degree in Paris at the University of Paris, which was also a life-changing experience. I'll bet it was. That's another interview. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I could. I mean, I could talk about that until everybody falls asleep. <laughs> anyway, um, and I just slid into doing accounting for small businesses. It was easy. It um, it it was finite. The life of a writer. I'm going to digress a little bit is doesn't have any um, definite finish points. You write a poem, you finish it, or you think it's finished, you're lucky it gets published in a magazine. Then it might get picked up and published in an anthology, but you might revise it. Then it goes into a collection, you might revise it again. Then you might have a collected poems, you might revise it again. So it's a constant process of evolution and be, and becoming. In accounting, there is the month end, there is the quarter end, there is the year end, and you close the books, you put them aside, and then you start all over again. And that really appealed to me. Um, so, but to bring you to, and I did that for, eight or nine years. And then I had my other epiphany. I woke up one morning and I, I was working, working very hard and I had a good job. My dad was very proud. I made more money as in the beginning in the business than he had made as than he was making as he was getting ready to retire. Um, I looked at my life and I said, I'm losing, I'm losing connection to everything about me, which I used to value. 
because I was working long hours. I had no time for myself. I had no time for friends. Um, and uh, I used to love to cook. I, again, I do love to cook, but I started burning things that I used to be able to make with my eyes closed. I know this sounds crazy. And I thought, is this what I want to be doing with my life? I was actually considering getting an MBA at that point because I was far enough along that I needed a graduate degree to go further. And I walked away from it from one week to I gave notice. I didn't know what I wanted to do. Wow. Um, and um, we were living pretty close to the bone then. Uh, I wasn't married yet, uh, but my now husband was just getting started in his career. And he supported me, even though I had been the breadwinner. He had told me a long time before, you should be a writer. He saw who you were. I didn't realize it. Yeah, he and, saw you. And, uh, and I started doing research for a, a book about a biography, actually. This is talk about taking on something completely out of your um, skill set from not having written anything at all, not even a, not a poem, nothing. I decided to write a biography of Clara Schumann, 19th century piano virtuoso, huh? wife of Robert Schumann, close confidant of Johannes Brahms. I love that music. My husband plays it at home all the time. I feel very lucky. Um, I had to learn German. I had to learn about music. I went to East Germany, which is where the archives are. And uh, I came home, I started writing it. Um, I had a major publisher, which was very interested. And I hit writer's block. Oh, wow. Because I hit you writer... were supposed to be a poet, you were not supposed to write a book. Well, I, I, I like to think that's the case. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and that's how it worked out, but I didn't know that at the time. And a friend this of in mine- the 1980s? Was this in the 1980s? Yes, this was in the 1980s. So this is, so this, is, so this something happened in the 80s that inspired you to become a, to turn to- And I'll tell you what that was. So I'm, I'm there at the NYU library with my note cards and my reference books writing a paragraph and crossing out a paragraph for months on end. I could not write the chapter about Clara's conflict between her performance career and being a mother. She had seven children. And my this friend was going to this very famous series of literary readings at the 92nd Street Y. Famous and, place, everyone, for those of you who are not. Yes, here. if you're anywhere near New York City, it's not to be missed. Right. And she she said, well, why don't you come with me for a break? She didn't even know who was reading. So I met her up there. And they turned down the lights and uh, a young 
poet then called Mary Jo Salter was reading from her award-winning collection, Henry Purcell in Japan. And no sooner had she started reading than the floodgates opened up inside of me. And I dug around in my bag for a scrap of paper and a pen. And in the dark, I started scribbling. The poems that I wrote then were the poems about going to East Germany and meeting people who told me not to stay, not to stay in touch with them because they might lose their jobs if any mail came from the West. Wow. So I had this incredibly intensive immersion, not only in the material of Clara Schumann, I, they gave me, they let me handle all this original material, which I felt her presence. And, and then nights I would spend time with the East Germans who were in the hotel where I was staying. We drank a fair amount of schnapps, but it was very friendly. And I wanted, I, you know, we felt like we were friends, but it had to stop. And so I couldn't write about them. Not only could I not write to them, but I couldn't but write, write about, about them. And it was those poems which just spilled out of me as a result of Mary Jo Salter. Wow. And um, I've had a chance to tell her that, which is, I'm glad. Um, but it wasn't long before I had found my bliss. This is what I wanted to do. So now you're writing poetry and you're doing your thing. And all of a sudden, not all of a sudden, years later, you have this absolutely horrific experience on 9-11. And it actually culminated where I, I know from reading about you that your husband actually thought you had died. So I think that um, our, which is leading to this amazing book that you wrote and also, would you tell us, you know, what you'd like to tell us about 9-11? Sure. What you went through that day? Sure. You lived a block away from 9-11. I, I lived a block as the crow flies. I was in the apartment that morning getting ready to go about my life. Um, I was sitting, having a cup of coffee and finishing the paper. And it was about 9 o'clock and the phone rang. And it was my sister who lives in North Carolina saying, are you okay? Just out of the blue, blurting, are you okay? I thought, this is crazy. I said, sure. Why? She said, I just saw a plane fly into the World Trade Center. So I basically dropped the phone, ran to the other end of the same room, which was the living room, looked out the living room window and saw the fires oh my God. way up. Uh, I had to see everything. I had to open the window and stick my head out because I didn't live on a high floor, but I saw the North Tower and uh, the, the ring of stories where flames were coming out of the windows that had broken, where 
black smoke was being lifted up almost like a curtain to the top of the building. There was a like a black tornado rising above the building. I mean, you couldn't see the top of it. Um, did you and, see people jumping out of it or anything? I did. Oh, I, oh. I saw people falling. And a more poignantly for me, uh, I saw people inside floors trying to escape. Oh my God. So, you know, in when you're in a traumatic situation, some of your senses shut down and other senses become more acute. So my ear, my hearing was, it was like I was deaf. I didn't hear any ambulances. I hardly heard anything, but not for a while. But how could I see in such detail people on the 70th floor? But I did. And one of the things that I saw was a guy behind one of those narrow windows taking a heavy office armchair and picking it up and hurling it wow. at the glass to break it. Of course, the, the glass was tempered every which way so that it wouldn't break under the high winds that moved the buildings. And then on the same floor, a little further away, the windows had been been burst out. So they were openings and I saw two young women crawl up onto the sill, put their feet dangling out over the outside of the building. Those openings were pretty narrow, so they were shoulder to shoulder. I saw them look at each other, hold hands, and I saw them jump. Wow, oh my God. And the what would, you know, I think a lot of people died instantaneously or close to instantaneously. Other people died under circumstances over which they had absolutely no control. Um, other people had the experience of fleeing under such horrible conditions that it's hard to imagine that. Wow. But to see people decide that they would rather jump to certain death than try to get out some other way or hide or any other futile thing that you could do um, has stayed with me. Of course it has. Now you, you though started running yourself, didn't you? I mean, you saw that you what, what you grabbed what and then you started running. <laughs> I mean, your adventure is quite amazing, which you write about in in your poetry. Um, so what was what what was that about? Well, I knew right away that those towers were going to come down. I didn't. A lot of people hung around, but I, I didn't change my clothes. I was wearing dirty clothes. I didn't have a bra on. I didn't have a belt on. My cell phone was almost dead. I grabbed my hat, a hat, because it was very sunny, a baseball hat, my glasses, my bag, 
I didn't. I don't know if I had any money in it whatsoever. Um, the You're cell phone. And you scared, and you had to get out of there. Yeah, and I left. I, I don't know within two or three minutes. I didn't use the bathroom. I didn't. You know, like I, I had whatever I had on. I left with. And you started running. You just started. I started. I I exited the building, and I could see there were masses of people uh fairly nearby waiting to to decide what to do me i couldn't get away from there fast enough and so i headed south away from those people away from the buildings um and ended up at the very bottom of manhattan where the staten island ferry docks thinking that I was going to keep continuing up around the edge of Manhattan to the Brooklyn Bridge or something like that. But anywhere further would have taken me back close to the buildings again. So just there was a ferry. They said there was going to be a ferry. There were other people there, but they were all people who lived on Staten Island going home because buildings around the area had evacuated. We got on the ferry eventually, and then um, the ferry was engulfed in smoke. Oh my God. Um, I mean, you have to remember that I, I didn't know what had happened. Um, it could have been a, an even less localized disaster and um the ferry you know i'm sitting on this ferry we're all wearing life vests even though i say this in the poem the windows wouldn't open far enough for you to get out of the ferry with a life vest on (laughs) so it was ridiculous but nonetheless we put the life vests on cell phones hadn't been working it's amazing to me that you even processed that with what you were going through well you know you're all all of your thoughts are focused i have to say it on the people you love and survival or at least that's what it was for me there were other people i saw and other people hanging around uh wanting to take pictures wanting to um trying to talk to people, write texts, whatever, as though it was their job to do that. Me, my job was to stay alive. Get out of town, get out yeah. of Dodge. Yeah. So now you cross over, you go to Staten Island. Yes. Now you get, to, now what? Well, that was when I fell apart. Up until that point, I was very focused. But when I ended up on Staten Island, I didn't know anybody there. I still hadn't been able to reach Tom, even though with the last bars on my cell phone, I kept trying. And um, there's a park overlooking the harbor near the ferry terminal. And I just collapsed on a bench there um there were some kids nearby watching what you could see in the distance at that point was an enormous 
black cloud squatted on the horizon, higher than any skyscrapers, as wide as from New Jersey to Brooklyn. Wow. So you could not, and we, in fact, on the ferry coming across, we didn't emerge from that cloud until we were beyond the Statue of Liberty. We started to, anyway. Um, so the ferry started to move, even though it was engulfed in, in smoke and all its Yes, it did. And then, and then it stopped again. And it sat there for 15 minutes, um, dead on the water, basically, just floating in this a black cloud. Um, but it started up again. I, I, you know, I don't. I hope those people have told their stories because I would like to hear them and read them. Um, and they found the route and they made it to Staten Island. And we all sort of looked back and saw came out of the cloud and I guess I mentioned in the book that at some point, as the cloud, we were in an area where the cloud was dissipating. I looked out of the window and I saw some people treading water in that very choppy bay, trying to be rescued. Um, oh, how traumatic. Oh my God. And it, and but of course, there was no way they could be rescued from a ferry. You know, they were 20 feet away, maybe. I was on the bottom berth, but, um, and, and that ferry was calling them. So, I mean, I hope that some of the many boats which went out to help people found them, that they were able to stay, keep their heads above water long enough. Um, wow. They were, so, and so now, wait, now you're in Staten Island. Yeah. About and and you eventually found your way to your husband, right? Yes. How did that? So your husband now thinks you're gone. Yes, so my husband had not heard from me. He was where he was. He they were watching TV. He was coincidentally at a business meeting in Westchester. If if it hadn't been on that day. He would have been going through the concourse to get the subway as the towers were hit. Oh my gosh. So, but me, but because he wasn't, he was in a car. They didn't know what was happening. He got to where the meeting was and he's, it was almost 10 o'clock. He walked into the room. The towers came down. The first tower came down, which was the South Tower. And he looked at his boss, he said, my wife is dead. And then it was three more hours before I was able to reach him. So during that time, he was convinced I was gone. And, you know, if he had been there and I had been away and knew how close he was to what was going on, I would have thought he was dead. Myself. Absolutely. So now what prompted you to write this book September 12th and how, and how was that process healing for you when you were writing it? Well, early on, I thought that my experience was not reflected by what people were seeing, 
what people were hearing. I never saw, until I was on Staten Island, I never saw the iconic TV shots of the plane going into the North Tower or the South Tower. Um, and um, I just believe in telling stories. I believe that the more particular the stories are, mm -hmm. the more people can connect to them. I believe I I still believe that this book adds to the historical record. I have taken absolutely no factual liberties with the material, uh, even in the description, which is maybe heresy for a poet to say, since we're supposed to be poetic and it's a poem is the life of the imagination. But I believe that um, poems can tell stories. And you certainly do, and you certainly do. So um, while I was writing it for the first three or four years, it was extremely difficult every time to, to, to write vividly about the experience. I had to go there again. Sure you did. And every time I went there again, I felt the same things, sure including the physical symptoms of what I now have as from exposure to the dust. Mm -hmm. So I had rashes on my skin. I have asthma. I had high blood pressure. And so I would work on it for a while. And then when the symptoms got too bad, I would stop. And the next week I would go back to it. So you didn't have those symptoms before. They were all worried. No, they were all. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So, um, since we're talking about it and it wasn't quite healing for you yet because you were getting triggered as you were writing it but <laughs> let's talk about your exquisite poem titled learning to write since we're talking about your writing it because it touches on the theme of, of rebirth and i really think that everyone in our grief and rebirth podcast audience will really appreciate hearing you read this incredible poem which mm -hmm. is such an example of your book filled with incredible poetry so please go please read thank you irene you're welcome you're right that this poem is sort of emblematic of the process of healing and the actual healing experience um while not being about it explicitly really at all um it, the title is learning to write and it was prompted by an experience I had at Higby Beach, which is in Cape May, in May of 2014. So mm -hmm. that's 13 years later. Six months, I couldn't write. Words lost their connection to the world. Meaning itself seemed impossible, a futile gesture but it's hard to live without faith. Faith that language can bridge our differences. Once I saw three species of warblers share a single oak willow, Blackburnian 
flame-throated, flitted about the sun-licked top, chestnut-sided in the shade at the bottom and the bay-breasted within the canopy. A, the tree offering a feast to exhausted migrants. Edward Hicks painted the peaceable kingdom over 60 times as if art could make it so. If lions can lie down with lambs and serpents lead a child to safety, why can't we live and let live without killing each other? But they don't, neither can we. In May, I come upon a plump yellow warbler perched at eye level on a nest at the edge of a field. No cup, this nest is more of a stovepipe, an upside down top hat. Four times this spring, to judge from its height, a brown-headed cowbird laid an egg in the yellow warbler's nest, hoping the smaller bird will raise the gigantic chick as her own. Four times so far, the warbler added a new story on top of the old, abandoning one clutch to lay another. Four times already, she's accepted what she can't change and moved on. Accept what is and move on, just as birds the world over do and have done for millions of years, along coasts, across oceans, up and down rivers, the Mississippi, the Delaware, my beloved Hudson, the Nile, Tigris, Euphrates, from one hemisphere to the other and back. Birds have found their way. Consider that bird sitting on that skyscraper of a nest, her yellow breast bright as sunlight, her gaze unwavering, unflinching. Imagine everything she has done to get here. Perhaps we too can find our way. That's wonderful. Wonderful. Thank wonderful. you. Thank you, Andrea. What would you like to share with us about how therapy helped you to, to begin to heal? It took me a long time to get into therapy afterwards. Um, not that I hadn't done therapy before and had a good experience, but there was a certain boosterism, which we heard about, that we shouldn't let 9-11 defeat us. We should move back into our poisoned homes. <laughs> we should go try to resume our normal lives as though life was going to be the same. It wasn't. But we spent a lot of psychic energy pretending that it might be that might be like that. Um, I moved to California when it became clear that 
it was too toxic in every way for me to stay in that apartment. Um, and uh, only when we had settled here and I started to feel safe. So we're talking seven, eight years later. Yep. Um, I had another difficult experience which brought up all of 9-11 and I fell apart, fell apart more thoroughly than I had fallen apart physically after 9-11. And I found I had to do something. And I was lucky to find a therapist who was equipped by, she had worked with veterans coming back from Iraq, dealing with PTSD, uh, and she herself had suffered a great deal. And she helped me see the correlation and allowed me to feel really for the first time grief. And until I felt that grief, I did not begin to recover really. Right. Well, you had to be so brave through everything and you probably just couldn't let yourself feel that vulnerable. It's true. And in the beginning, and I write about this in the book, my husband took on a lot of things because I couldn't, you know, Red Cross, FEMA, insurance, uh, dealing with the, the apartment, which was I describe what it looked like to go back to. And but about a year after that, he fell apart. He had like a delayed reaction. And um, so I had to sort of restep to the plate. I don't know, how, to tell you the truth, I don't know how we made it through that time. But we something kept us moving forward. I. I I didn't want to be defined by this moment, but I, but this moment changed my life. So I didn't want to deny it either. So to find a balance between those two things, to learn to live with it, to learn to live with um, recurring, refreshing of the feelings of trauma. I. I'm not, I'm probably going to say something that a lot of your uh, listeners won't agree with, but I personally do not like the word closure. And the more I hear it, the more upset I get about it. Why is that? Because I think that closure implies putting something behind you, as opposed to accepting something and learning how to live with it and to, um, to move forward from it. Um, I mean, I, I feel like I have a vastly greater appreciation for what life is and can be because of what I carry around in me from this event. Absolutely. I also want to submit that I think that some of what helped you get through was it sounds like you have a wonderful bond with your husband. And even though you both were went through a lot, you had therapy, 
and you had a, a bond with him and that probably carried you through in a lot of ways. Yes, I you're you're right. I feel for all the ways I feel lucky, I feel lucky that I have a partner who's been with me all the way. And um, I think I don't think he would quarrel with the statement that um, we had a good marriage before 9-11, but we have a great marriage now. Because I'm, I'm hitting the table because I am a superstitious person. But because of with 9-11 and all, but you went to therapy. And I really think that that probably uh, brought out a lot of issues that gave you the chance to work on them to make it even better. Absolutely. Right. I mean, I'm a big believer in that. Um, you also state that you see loss as an opening, the chance for something new. Do you want to say anything more about that to our I'll say a little something, um, just like with letting possessions go. You have to, um, you have to free up your inner self to be open to new experiences. You can't feel love or joy if you're living in the past. I mean, you could feel love for the past, for people who have been part of your life and for the passage that brought you, but finding joy. Um, and birds help me with that. To come back to that poem. Um, find, you know, without joy, you're, you're living, but you're not alive. That's um, true. And um, we, uh, Tom was the birder before me. He introduced me to it. He was introduced to it by his grandparents in Central Park when he was a little boy. And one of the first things that we did when we bought our first car uh, was we went to a birding refuge out by JFK. And he showed me the birds that his grandparents had shown him. So um, what happens when you bird is you go away and you're just trying to be as open as possible to this other world. Birds, the world, the, the life of a bird is very straightforward. It's about staying alive. It's about eating it's about reproducing uh and yet if you observe birds they have personalities um and the interactions between species are pretty straightforward so it's if you can lose yourself in contemplating another kind of life it's a great relief from the burden of your of what you're carrying around yourself. So um, and I think it's one of the reasons why birding has become more popular. So in a way, I mean, your loss was an opening and you found this new um, passion. I did find a new path. I found another new passion when we moved to California. Uh, and finally settled here, we bought a very small house and the house came with citrus trees. 
So here I am, a girl who grew up in New Jersey with two orange trees, a lemon, two lemon trees, a lime tree, a tangerine tree. We're going to put in a loquat tree and you live by the seasons of the flowering, the bees come, the little fruits form, Sounds the wonderful. fruits are green and they get bigger all the time. And then a year later, you get to eat them and they're <laughs> incredible. That's wonderful. So. And they're yours. And they're yours and you yes. grew them. <laughs> and, but you can't really take any credit for them because they just do it no matter what. <laughs> so, Andrew, let me ask you, for anyone who wants to um, contact you through your website, I know you must have one, and to get a hold of you, um, I'm sure they can get your book through Amazon and all, September 12th, and it's wonderful. Um, is, would you like to tell everyone how they can reach out to you? I'd love to, because I'd love to hear from people. Um, so, so everyone, read her book and reach out to Andrea. Let, let her know how her words touched you. Thank you. So they can reach me through my website, and my website is www.andreacarterbrown.com, and there's a, a contact button at the top, and those emails will come right to me. And I welcome comments or hellos or whatever. I'm also on Facebook and Twitter and all the social media, stuff, all right? the all the platforms all the except platforms. LinkedIn. I won't go there. I won't go the corporate route. But um, and I, it comes to me and I will respond. Okay. And besides watching birds, you have another uh, and growing fruit. Do you have another tip for finding joy in life? The Angie Carter Brown. Yes. Yes. I, I, you've probably heard this from everybody else, but let go of the clutter. Pay attention to what you're really feeling. Don't pretend it's something else, but let it sink in and, and act on it. Um, when I lived in New York City, I lived in a small apartment for about 15 years. Very, uh, I worked full time in business. Um, and I got feeling very um, closed in. And every once in a while, I would do what's called, I would take what's called a mental health day. And I would get on a train, I didn't have a car. And I would go to Boston for the day. I would go to Philadelphia today, or if I got up early enough, I would go to Washington DC for the day. And I would walk around. It wasn't to see people. I would walk around. Sometimes I would go to a museum. Sometimes I would treat myself to a nice lunch. And from the beginning to the end of that trip, I just felt like I was feeding myself. It was self-love. You were really taking care of yourself. And, and um, so I sort of miss being able to do that out here because it's, it's not a public transportation life. Um, although I always carry a notebook with me and something to write with, and I never know when I'm gonna get an idea. If I only have my cell phone, I have about 200 texts on it wow. with ideas. Um, 
and and I don't feel like I have to do something with them. I think a lot of people who feel the impulse to write feel like they have to create something. I think it's it's a good thing just to keep a record of things that occur to you, whether they come out of your mind or whether you observe them walking down the street or overhear them in a in a in a in a Starbucks or wherever you get your coffee. And the sum of those things is an expression of your personality. And if you honor that, you will give yourself something to carry around. And that's part of healing. That's wonderful. Well, Andrea, that's that's a beautiful way to uh, conclude this interview. And I want to tell everyone that September 12th is such an incredibly brave book that documents both great loss and hard-won psychic resilience. And I congratulate you for that. Yours is such an inspiring story of acceptance, healing, and rebirth. Thank you for gifting us with a reading of your poem, Learning to Write, from your remarkable book. And I also thank you from my heart for this truly unforgettable interview. And here is, thank you. And here is a loving reminder, everyone, that you can see the show notes and all Grief and Rebirth podcast episodes on irieweinberg.com. And make sure to follow us and like us on social at at Irene S. Weinberg on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and especially on YouTube. Like, subscribe, hit notify to make sure you will get inspiring new interviews just like this one with Andrea Carter-Brown coming your way. Thank you so much. As I like to say, to be continued, many blessings, and bye for now. Mm -hmm.